Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. I've received uh, a couple of very welcome compliments from listeners lately, uh, saying that they're very much enjoying my reading, and it, it's so lovely to hear that. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Um, I have done some audiobook narration with thanks to uh, my friend Brian Rathbone. My first audiobook is called Ascension by Morgan Rich and Brian Rathbone, and I've done several other recordings for Brian. Of course, reading my own work is a totally different thing. I, I have listened to these voices in my head for years and years and years, and it's just a real pleasure and joy to to bring them to life and share them with a group of listeners. I'm, I'm having so much fun with it. Recently, a listener suggested that uh, it would be fun to hear me read War and Peace. So... Just because this particular episode is very short, I'm going to do a little we uh, call this my audition to do the audiobook for War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. <clears throat> Chapter One Well, Prince, so Genoa and Luca are now just family estates of the Bonapartes. But I warn you, if you don't tell me that this means war... If you still try to defend the infamies and horrors perpetrated by that Antichrist, I really believe he is Antichrist, I will have nothing more to do with you, and you are no longer my friend, no longer my faithful slave, as you call yourself. But how do you do? I see I have frightened you. Sit down and tell me all the news. It was in July 1805, and the speaker was the well-known Anna Pavlovna Scherer, maid of honor and favorite of the Empress Maria Fyodorovna. With these words she greeted Prince Vasily Kuragin, a man of high rank and importance, who was the first to arrive at her reception. Anna Pavlovna had had a cough for some days. She was, as she said, suffering from la grippe, grippe being then a new word in St. Petersburg, used only by the elite. All her invitations, without exception, written in French and delivered by a scarlet-liveried footman that morning, ran as follows. If you have nothing better to do, Count, or Prince, and if the prospect of spending an evening with a poor invalid is not too terrible, I shall be very charmed to see you tonight between seven and ten. Annette Scherer Heavens, what a virulent attack, replied the Prince, not in the least disconcerted by this reception. He had just entered, wearing an embroidered court uniform, knee-breeches and shoes, and had stars on his breast and a serene expression on his flat face. He spoke in that refined French in which our grandfathers not only spoke but thought, and with the gentle patronizing intonation natural to a man of importance who had grown old in society and at court. He went up to Anna Pavlovna, kissed her hand, presenting to her his bald, scented, and shining head, and complacently seated himself on the sofa. First of all, dear friend, tell me how you are. Set your friend's mind at rest, said he, without altering his tone, beneath the politeness and affected sympathy of which indifference and even irony could be discerned. Can one be well while suffering morally? Can one be calm in times like these if one has any feeling? said Anna Pavlovna. You are staying the whole evening, I hope. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> if you enjoyed it, tell everyone you know. <laughs> That was fun. And now, on with Chapter 9 of Gatekeeper's Key. 
Gatekeeper's Key by Krista Wallace. Chapter 9. A Day of Reckoning. At last, Jeskelin exclaimed, I sent Borograd in there half an hour ago to find you. You did not expect me to waste half a pint of ale, did you? Why did you not come in yourself if it was so important? Mikrit spoke dryly, but with a smirk on his upper lip as if he already knew the answer. I had a run-in with Travile only last night, Jeskelin replied irritably. He has a dark elf-like way of lurking in there where one cannot see him until he wants to be seen. I didn't want to risk it. The two headed along Harwood Road toward the river. He likes speaking to you because he knows it frightens you. It does not frighten me. Jeskelin snapped. I just find the nasal quality of his voice to be unpleasantly discordant. You are a source of entertainment to him. He hardly ever approaches me any more. I shouldn't think there'd be much point, the bald man grumbled moodily. Starlings? Of course. The vast difference in their heights made them an odd-looking pair as they walked the last few paces. Mikrit stooped under the doorframe after his friend. They squinted into the dimness of the tavern and found themselves a comfortable spot in a booth in the back corner. Their orders were promptly taken by a dark-robed girl who floated noiselessly to the bar to fill their requests. The proprietor of Starlings had found his establishment was attractive to magic users and did his best to accommodate them. Accordingly, the windows were covered with oiled sheepskin to keep out the afternoon sun. These mysterious folk preferred the gloom. Perhaps it inspired their conversation. The place was lit by only the single candle on each table and two or three behind the bar. The only food offered at Starlings was what could sit all day in the one and only pot over the fire, so there was soup or stew, never both. Sometimes bread was available, but only if someone had bothered to fetch some from the bakery. The patrons didn't mind. They did not come for the food as a rule. They came for the tavern's own special brew that helped mages reach their deeper selves to find clarity to enhance the broadness of their minds. "'How's that spell coming, the one you were telling me about last time?' Mikrit asked, settling into his cushiony seat. "'Oh, the Beast Summoner,' Jeskelin said casually. "'Or the Tunneling.' Mikrit looked impressed, as well he should. I was thinking of the former. Ah, yes, the latter is my newest undertaking. But the summoner... Passably, passably, as well as can be expected, what with my recent reconnection with Valraker, I haven't quite mastered the third step yet. Step three already, his friend replied, nodding in awe. That's pretty good for only three months, but then you were always one for speed. The girl set their tankards before them. Jeskelin cocked his head in an attempt at modesty, though it cannot be said that I sacrifice quality for quickness. No, Mikrit, my training as a shaman with my people gave me the ability to achieve a depth of concentration that is difficult for others to reach. That is why I am able to learn as quickly as I am, not to mention my ability to block out distractions during stressful situations so that the spells can be performed as instantaneously as is necessary amid battle. "'which is why you are a battle-mage while I am a mere perceptor.' Mikrit hooked a long tendril of brown wavy hair behind his ear. "'Now, what is it you want me to do for you?' Jeskelin's eyebrows went up. "'I thought you were not in the habit of using your talents on old friends.' <laughs> "'It takes no special skill to know that you have something to ask me, Jeskelin,' the other replied. "'That is simple observation, like any lay person uses. "'What is it?' Jeskelin lowered his voice and glanced over his shoulder. "'There is a new member in Valraker's party, 
a woman. I have reason to believe that she is not being completely forthright with us and may not have our best interests at heart. I would be grateful if you would do what you can to learn what her intentions are. Mykrit's face darkened. This has something to do with your discussion with Trevile. That's your reason to believe, yes? Jaskelin nodded. There was no point in lying to a preceptor, especially one who had known him for fifteen years. It is only that I have sensed magic emanating from her since we first met, and though it could just be residuals from a certain item she won off an opponent, I have my doubts that that is all, and now that Trevile— He trailed off. Mycrit regarded him objectively. Has she done anything to cause you to distrust her? Jaskelin hesitated. Well, no. Then the only reason you wish to learn more about her is because of Trevile? He believes she will bring danger to the party. If I can give Valraker good reason, he might pull her from the group and trouble will be avoided. His friend's face did not change. Jaskelin knew he was lying to himself, but if he could at least postpone problems until later... He was thinking only of the success of Valraker's mission. We have an important mission before us, he explained sternly. His companion swirled the pale liquid around in his tankard. Jiskelen, you ask me to do something that is against my code of ethics. Yes, there is a code of ethics among perceptors. If you had yourself witnessed any extraordinary behaviour on the part of this woman, or if Valraker had sent you to me in an official capacity, I might be able to help you. But as it is, I cannot go around reading people's minds without just cause. I have the ability, of course. It does not take extra effort on my part to turn it on and off, any more than your body is weakened dramatically by a simple clumsiness spell. But can you imagine what position I would be in if I used my skill continually? I would not be trusted in any society. The only friend I would have would be they who must judge a person's guilt or innocence. Such a skill as mine can be just as much of a curse as it is a blessing, my friend. Would you still keep company with me if I had not sworn to you that I would not read your mind unless you asked me to? Jaskelin sighed and shook his head. You are still reacting to the discomfort Trevile gave you. My advice is this. Wait until you return from your journey. If at that time you have your own reason to think this woman is of concern to yourself or to Valraker, come to me and I will reconsider. In the meantime, if you still want it now, I suggest you go find another perceptor, perhaps from across the river, where ethics are less prevalent. Kier drooled over the hundreds of volumes that filled the shelves in the modestly sized library. It was on the second floor on the windowless side, for it was up against the inner castle wall, but was made warm and pleasant by an ever-present fire in the grate and the decorations. A portrait of Kian himself was above the slate mantel, and a life-sized statue of an old elf stood in the corner near it. Armchairs waited here and there next to handy side tables, and brightly colored braided rugs warmed the stone floor. But most inviting were the bookcases that lined the walls. A lightweight ladder stood nearby for accessing the higher shelves. Already Kier looked forward to a return visit to Shale so she could read all the volumes that snagged her attention. Barthelen was predictably a family history, whereas Coming of Ages looked like the story of the Southern Duchies, how they had been divided originally, and how they were being united under Kean's rule. Some histories of Eckert interested her, as did Heath and its peoples, the history of her home duchy. Shelf upon shelf of fictional stories would have occupied her for weeks. Most of the books were in the Rydrish tongue, but there were many in Elvish and High Elvish. 
Then she found the section in the darkest corner of the library. Here were a few volumes so dusty they couldn't have been touched for decades. The titles were barely readable, but they beckoned to her because they were in Dark Elvish. Kier had never beheld any written form of Dark Elvish that had not been penned by Brendau. Contrary to Derry's claim that Valraker was the only one, there were three people left in Rydris who could read, write, or speak this language— that she was one of them was not a thing she was ready to confide in Valraker. Brendau had made it clear she must never reveal her knowledge to anyone. The Dark Elves, her trainer had told her, were extremely protective of their secrets. Their language was a key to their very identity. Her speaking it could be interpreted as the ultimate violation, subject to what consequences Brendau was not willing to guess. "'Why do you speak it, then?' Kier had asked, careful not to sound impertinent." Brendau had been unwilling to explain beyond his having special permission, for reasons he would not share. Kier had further inferred that if she revealed her knowledge, it would follow that his identity and whereabouts could be traced, and she respected him too much to risk that. What would Valraker do if he found out? Maybe he would have to kill her. The thought unsettled her. This, however, was an opportunity not to be missed— a chance to learn more about dark elves, where they came from, where they had lived, what had become of them. She moved the ladder over to that corner and climbed up to the second shelf from the top. She gently pulled Krendashferilan, or Hidden Wonders, off the shelf and tucked it carefully under her arm as she climbed back down. She set the heavy book down and moved the ladder so anyone coming in might not see at once which section she had been to. She lit a lamp and curled up in an armchair. The book in her lap, she carefully lifted the cover and turned it back, the handwritten pages squeaking with age, protesting the unfamiliar movement like atrophied muscles. Eagerly, Kier read about the northern caves in which the dark elven people had once made their homes, the crystal palaces that glowed deep beneath the earth from whence much of their riches had come, the immense carved-out halls of stone that could only be equaled by those of the dwarves, except for the minute delicacy of detail for which the dwarves were not known, and the caves had other properties as well. Kier was lost in the wonders described and had no awareness of the passage of time. A soft ahem startled her, and she slammed the book shut with a bang. Derry stood in the doorway. She exhaled loudly. You scared the hell out of me. She hoped the expression on her face hid her guilt. Your teachers must have found you to be a studious pupil. Nope, she called me fractious and threw a five-pound doorstop at me. Goodness, were you hurt badly? Kier grinned. No, to her great vexation, I caught it. She nearly lost her mind. She was so sick of me being mouthy and knowing more than she did. Derry smiled. I'm sure Frederick understands her point of view. <laughs> a surprised laugh escaped her. Was that evidence of a sense of humor? What were you so engrossed in? he asked. Oh, just a boring old history of Heath, she lied, stretching languorously. At least Derry wouldn't be able to make out the title of the book in the dim light. Is it time for supper yet? Not yet. Actually, I have been looking all over for you. We are both wanted in the hall in a few minutes. His gaze wandered and, to her dismay, landed over her shoulder, somewhere up high. Alarmed, she stood up, hoping to draw his attention. I'll be right there. I just have to put this away. He nodded, paused as if to say something more, then departed. Shit, she was sure he had just seen the empty place on the shelf where Krendish Ferrelan ought to have been. 
She hastily moved the ladder back and replaced the book, assuring herself that it was far too dark in this corner for him to have seen the gap between the volumes. Probably he was not familiar enough with Kean's library to know what section that was. She purposefully leaned the ladder up against the shelf that held the history of Heath and pulled it out, wiped the dust off it so it looked as if it had been used recently, and replaced it. She blew out the lamp and rushed out. Less than two hours after his talk with Valraker, Sir Frederick was summoned to the Great Hall, where he was met with a gathering that dismayed him. Each footfall was painfully audible as he walked the full length of the room. Dread swelled in his heart with each step. Valraker gazed at him with the same expression he had worn when they last spoke. Derry was next to his lord, wearing a typical Derry expression. Kier, too, was there with her head held straight and her eyes focused on some indeterminable point in the air. The anger in her face had been replaced with something that resembled indifference, and Frederick couldn't understand how he ever found her attractive. Sergeant Leighty and Usher Tomkin were also there, as well as two of the younger lads from the guard. Of all those present in the room, only the sight of one gave him pause. Kean Barthelen wore cold sternness like a panther wears its black. The duke was seated at the far end of the hall, his fingers stroking the arms of his chair. After his conversation with Valraker, Frederick had still been of a mind to try to talk his way out of this difficulty, to at least minimize his own guilt in the affair by pointing out the folly of his men in passing such a foolish tale along and even hinting at Kier's lack of discretion. But he saw that look. Valraker was right. Kean could be ruthless. Far better to be truthful and be dealt more minor consequences than to be seen as a liar and suffer the ultimate wrath of his lord. Kier avoided eye contact with Frederick as he strode into the hall, but she watched him. She watched the way he held his head and gazed around him like a cocky teenager who was used to getting away with everything. Did he have any idea how angry Kean was? Kier could see it, and she'd known him less than twenty-four hours. Frederick bowed. My Lord Barthelon. Kean moved in his chair. Sir Frederick, do you know of what you are accused? Yes, my lord, I believe I do. Kier managed to not roll her eyes. He believes he does. No, Kier was pretty sure Frederick hadn't a clue how much trouble he was in. I have spoken to the others present about their knowledge of these vile rumors being circulated. You are the captain of my guard and a knight of my banner. Speak now on your own behalf. What do you know of this and what is your part in it? Frederick took a deep breath and spoke with the same ceremonial voice he'd used to greet them upon their arrival at the gate. My Lord Kean, he bowed, I deeply regret that it is true. A delightful evening spent with your guest, Kier, has been debased by my ill-considered decision to relate our private business to a friend when an apparently untrustworthy younger man was nearby. You are their captain, Kean said flatly, ignoring the vain attempt to shift the blame, and as such are responsible for their behavior as well as your own. Your actions have not been worthy of your station or of your men. Yes, my lord. 
I would also question your prudence, given your choice to discuss private business of this particular nature, even with a friend, let alone when another person was near. Yes, my lord, I humbly apologize to Kier. Frederick bowed to her. False humility, but Kier nodded in return. You are gracious, Kier, Kian said, considering the indignity you have suffered. I apologize for your treatment in my home. Your first day in shale has not been as much to your liking as I would have hoped. Perhaps not, my lord, Kier said. But what's done is done. I'm willing to put this behind us. Kian's stern expression remained fixed on her. She didn't flinch. Frederick had settled into his position, relaxing. Did he think it was over? He was wrong. The Duke placed his eye on his captain again. Now what of the part of the story that suggests a slur on the character of Lord Valraker? Blood rushed up Frederick's neck and coated his face. A mere jest, sir, he said, with a hint of desperation. There has been much speculation amongst the men about Kier's presence in his lordship's party. It was an ill-considered attempt at humor. I didn't dream anyone would take the notion seriously and never intended it to be spread around like the pox. He glanced at the two young soldiers, the unfortunate pair who had met Kier and Derry in the passageway. Kier had to commend his performance. He almost had her convinced that he'd meant it as a joke. Frederick faced the Duke of Eckert. Lord Valraker, I know it to be untrue, and I sincerely regret such a flippant remark. His bow was a silent plea. Well said, Sir Frederick. Thank you for both the explanation and the apology. Val's tone was sincere, but Kier picked up on his sarcasm and had to stare at the stone floor and clench her teeth to keep from smiling. "'That will do, Sir Frederick. Your story matches those of the others present in this room, and I thank you for your honesty. However, there is one other piece in the history that you have not volunteered, and it is the part that disturbs me the most. I am told this is not the first time you have shamed or degraded those around you.' and that you have threatened repercussions for anyone who dared inform your superiors of your behavior. Is this, like the other stories, true? Frederick's sudden pallor and widened eyes within a head that looked too heavy for him to hold up any more told her he was unprepared for this. Kier watched him wrestle with his reactions. Would he feign indignation, claim he was falsely accused? His eyes darted around at the soldiers present. At last he looked only defeated. He spoke hoarsely. Yes, my lord. No excuses, no talking his way out of it, no denying it. Kean's face was grave. He drummed his fingers on the arm of the chair and rubbed his chin with the other hand. You have humiliated your men. You have treated women with a deplorable lack of respect. You have flagrantly abused your authority. "'Yes, my lord.' His shoulders sagged, but his teeth were clenched. "'Have you anything more to say?' Frederick took a moment, then straightened. "'Only, my lord, that I have erred, and I admit my guilt. I beg of you to remember that I have served you, fervently, since I was a child. I am sorry, my lord Kean.' There, he had cleaned his slate— it will never, ever happen again. Kier actually believed him. The air hung thick and soundless. 
Kian's jaw was tight, and a vein in his forehead pulsed more and more persistently as his brow furrowed. Kier was awed by the duke's self-control, for the stiffness of his body, the whiteness of his knuckles, and the emotions that passed across his face told her Kian could have struck at Frederick like a cobra if his years and wisdom had not taught him restraint. Kian finally honored Sir Frederick again with his gaze. I must admit to the shame I feel at my unawareness of these goings-on. Kean's words tumbled out matter-of-factly, contrary to the emotion he held in check. You were a paragon, or so I believed. And yet I learned that all this while your ignominious behavior has become commonplace at Shale Castle, behind my back. Grasping the arms of the chair, he slowly pushed himself to standing, and Frederick took an involuntary step backward. "'Draw your sword, Sir Frederick,' the Duke said. Frederick paled, but obeyed. He held the weapon in both hands, and Kier saw the trepidation in his stance as he tried to be ready for whatever Kian had in mind. "'What is suitable atonement for all your wrongdoings?' Kian ruminated aloud. And suddenly there was a tremendous crash as his own greatsword, Kier hadn't even seen him draw it, clashed with Frederick's, and the knight circled slowly, his weapon locked with his lord's, sweat beating on his forehead and his own death in his eyes. Kian, by contrast, remained stolid. He loomed over Frederick as though the knight were no more than a youth. The ring of the steel reverberated through the hall and shuddered through Kier's bones. Only when the echo had ended and the silence became expectantly palpable did he speak again, his voice as cold as the stone floor. "'Perhaps I shall give you the opportunity to decide your own fate,' Ian suggested reasonably. "'Shall I challenge you to a duel?' Frederick's voice trembled. "'My lord,' he pleaded. "'If you win, you will have proven your worth. If you lose—' Kean stopped circling and chuckled humorlessly. <laughs> if you lose, you'll be dead. Frederick may as well slit his own throat as agree to a duel with Kean Barthelon. The knight breathed an inaudible sigh of intense relief as Kean withdrew his great sword and placed its point on the floor. His huge hands rested on the guard. It is true that you have served me for over twenty-five years, he said, finally responding to Frederick's words. And in that time, my standards— the expectations I hold of all my men ought to have become habitual, ingrained. Instead, you have cast a shadow over this household, this city, this duchy. By association, you have tarnished my good name. It is unforgivable. He stared down at Frederick. Kier dreaded knowing what he was thinking. You have abused the power entrusted to you as my captain. As a result, my only option is to remove you from that power. Frederick Hayland. He spoke what sounded to Kier like a memorized speech, one saved for just this sort of rare occasion. You are dismissed from the guard of Shale Castle. You are no longer its captain. I hereby relieve you of your knighthood. All items marked with the symbol of Shea Dachi you will forfeit, and you will leave this castle and this city at once, taking only what you can manage on your horse and on your back. 
You may live anywhere you choose in this duchy except the city of Shale. Please give me your sword at once. I no longer require its services in your hand. He turned to where the other men stood. Usher Tompkin, I hereby appoint you captain of the guard of Shale Castle. May you serve it well. Frederick's face was gray. Kier hoped she would never find herself on Kian's bad side. Frederick had not bargained for this at all. He had thought he might be reprimanded, put in the stocks for a short time, suspended even. But to have his knighthood removed? His captaincy? He opened his mouth to speak, but could find no words of remonstrance. His gaze locked on the weapon in his hand. The sword his lord had given him had been his constant companion for eight years. To part with it would be like cutting off his arm. Frederick gritted his teeth and swallowed hard. Kneeling, he laid the precious item gently at the feet of Kian Barthelon, the small clunk of the hilt on the stone startling in the stillness. Then he turned and walked unseeing out of the great hall, a shamed man never to be welcome in that fair place again. Frederick Hayland packed his horse and rode out through the gates of the castle he had loved and proudly defended for nearly thirty years. Twenty-four hours after meeting Kier for the first time, he had lost everything that mattered in his life. His lord, Kian Barthelon, whom Frederick had served with devotion for so long, had sentenced him to the worst fate imaginable. He resented his men for allowing the stories to be passed on, he was furious at whoever it was who told Valraker, and he was angry even with himself for his actions. But more than anything, he hated Kier Halladin. Khan joined the entry queue at the Sunset Gate, along with several others, a few merchants, a coach full of tourists, and a passel of performers. He had put on a hat with a brim, but nothing more to alter his appearance. He relied on being just another one of the crowd. He didn't avoid eye contact with the guard, but neither did he maintain it, allowing his gaze to peer into the city as if he were unable to contain his excitement. When asked his purpose, he replied, Coming in to meet my girl in time for the festival. Funny, he wasn't even lying. He passed through into shale unmolested. That's it for Chapter 9. Next week, we get to join in the festival that Khan mentioned. And will he reach his quarry? That is the question. Tune in to hear Derry say, You know, being in your company is never going to make me drowsy. Now, the cool thing about doing a podcast as opposed to publishing my story traditionally is that uh, I can do fun things like adding in a scene that would otherwise have been deleted. For instance, scene one that we heard today is the scene where Jaskelin goes and talks to Mycrit. I would probably cut that scene if I were going to publish the book because, (laughs) well, when I was writing this, this is going to be a little, this is a little bit of author commentary for you, which I feel I can add in because this episode was uh, kind of short. So when I wrote that scene, the intention was that 
Jaskelin would come back to Shale at another time and he would have a legitimate reason to ask Mycrit to go um, kind of do a mind probe of Kier. And I've, I've even written the scene where he does that and he discovers a thing and reports back to Jaskelin. But you see, I wrote all that before I really knew how the whole story was going to play out. And as it turns out... That that second scene is redundant. Um, when, as I wrote the story, Jaskella never came back to shale. <laughs> so I was like, oh, uh, I don't have a place to even put that scene. So, and then the things that he discovers from Mycrit, he actually learns in a different way. So that the second half of the scene became redundant. And as a result, really the first half of the scene became redundant. So I included it here in this episode. It does show his growing suspicion of Kier, so there's that. Um, mostly I just kept it in because otherwise this would have been a really, really short episode. Anyway, there, there you go. This is, this is sort of the director's cut where you get some author commentary on, on the inclusion of the deleted scene. And maybe I'll podcast the other scene another time in some sort of bonus episode for your interest. Of course, the intention is eventually once I have podcast Gatekeeper's Key in its entirety, I will uh, I will put out an audiobook for anyone who's interested in listening to the whole story without all the intro, outro, me yammering away, blah, 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 in between each episode. That will be for sale in the hopefully not too distant future. We'll see you next week. Thank you to my family, Matt. David, Heather, and Maggie. As ever, David and Sharon. Thanks always to the original six, and thank you all for joining me. Take care of each other. Now go be fantastic.